Luke 22 is where we've been. I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about Luke. Um, Luke is a medical doctor. He has traveled around now to multiple places as an eyewitness, uh, he, or, or going around and, and interviewing eyewitnesses of Jesus's life and Jesus's death and Jesus's resurrection. And he's doing this because he cares deeply for this guy uh, named Theophilus. Um, that's a weird name. Uh, some people would say uh, shorten it and call it Theo. You can do whatever you want. But Theophilus is the guy that he is wanting to know, and he says in Luke 1, uh, so that he can get an orderly account of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection to this guy. He also writes Acts, which is uh, the story of how the church got started to this guy, Theophilus. So he cares very much about this guy, Theophilus. We don't know a ton about him. Uh, he, he may be a skeptical guy, unsure about some of these weird things that he's hearing about this guy who lived a perfect, sinless life, and this guy who uh, conquered the penalty of Satan, sin, and death through his resurrection. And so what he's doing is Luke is traveling using all of his money, all of his resources, all of his time for the next multiple years. And he's writing this book, Luke's gospel, so that this guy can hear about Jesus. And just think about the sacrifice that he's willing to make so that this guy can know who Christ is. And so what, what ends up happening is Luke writes about specific themes that show up multiple times in his gospel. He, he talks about miracles pretty thorough, and it's very interesting that he's a medical doctor and he talks about miracles. And he, he also talks a, a lot about God's sovereignty. And what you're going to see really toward the end of the book here is how Jesus is not surprised by anything that's about to happen. Jesus Christ, the God of the universe, who comes in the form of a man, humbles himself, lives a perfect sinless life, is now going to be put on the cross of shame for our behalf. And what, what Luke does is he shows us, shows this guy Theophilus, in turn shows us here today that Jesus Christ is not caught by surprise by anything that happens about his death. In fact, what he constantly shows us throughout Luke's gospel is that, or constantly shows um, Theophilus throughout Luke's gospel, is that the God of the Bible, Jesus Christ, is one who is sovereign over all things, good and bad. Let me say it another way. The God of the Bible is a God who is sovereign over all things, good and bad bad. Let me say it a different way. If you don't believe in the sovereign God, you don't have a biblical view of God. Because the one that Jesus is presenting to this guy, Theophilus, the inspired word of God, is presenting a God who's sovereign over all things. And so if you don't see it this way, you're going to get a couple things messed up, all right? You're going to get this story that we're about to see about Judas's life messed up. If you don't see that God's sovereign over all things, you're not going to see this the way that Luke portrays it. The second thing is, if you don't have a view that God is sovereign and good over all things, here's what you'll end up doing. You have a very small God and a very distant God, which is also not the God of the Bible. And so it's important that you, as a believer in Jesus, see him as the way that Luke portrays him as the God who's sovereign and good over all things. Sadly, 
what, what I see in my own culture and what we see here in the South is, man, people dodge this issue a lot, mainly because it's very controversial and it's hard to hear. I've even heard pastors say things like this. Well, God's sovereign, but he's only sovereign over the good things in life. The bad things, he's just not sovereign over. Well, that really stinks. Here's why that stinks. It's because when bad things are happening to me, when do I need him? When bad things are happening to me, I need to know that the God of the universe, the sovereign God, the God who controls all things is in control of the bad things because in the bad things is when I need him, right? Are you guys with me? Is it just me that's excited about this? We have a sovereign God over all things, good and bad, because he's that good, right? Because he's that good. So this is what you're going to see in Luke's gospel. Luke is going to show us here how God's plan, even in the midst of death, that Jesus Christ would die and that Jesus Christ was not surprised by any of the events that took place. All right. So Luke 22, verse 1. We're going to start. We're going to jump right in. Look at what it says. Now, the feast of the unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with what the Passover is, so let me explain. Uh, Jesus, God of the Bible, uses um, this, this um, nation, the Israelites, to ultimately bring about his one and only son, Jesus Christ. And, and so what you constantly see throughout the Old Testament are pictures and foreshadows of what Christ was going to do. And so what he does is he takes this nation who is at one time held captive by this wicked, hard-hearted Pharaoh, and he's over these people and he's holding them captive. So God, in his goodness and in his humor in some ways, goes to this guy, Moses, who is basically living on his dad's land and kind of just, you know, a very small blip on the radar, if you will. And he goes to him and he says, you're going to be my mouthpiece, which is ironic because Moses has a speech impediment. You're going to be the one that you're going to, I'm going to speak my words through your mouth. And, and he says, he shows up in a burning bush and he says, I want you to show up to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. Now, if you think about how crazy this is, this is a shepherd who is a nobody that's going to go up to the strongest leader in all of the world. And he's going to say, let my people go. And God says, no, you're going to be my mouthpiece. And he says, how, who am I going to tell him that sent me? God says, tell him I am. Well, that's helpful, right? I am sent me, let my, let his people go, Right. And what happens is Moses goes to him and tells him, and Pharaoh, his hard heart, even though God shows him many signs that he is legit, Pharaoh hardens his heart, and what takes place is God punishes Pharaoh, and God punishes the land. And he sends 12 separate plagues, one of which is when God uh, kills the first, firstborn male of every single family. And what would happen is an angel of death would pass over your house and then you would be killed. You're, or, you're, or the first male of every family would be killed. Firstborn male of every family. But what takes place is God gives them grace. He says this to Israelites. If you want to be, if you want this angel of death to pass over your house and the wrath of God not be placed in your house, here's what you have to do. You have to sacrifice a lamb and you take that blood and you wipe it over uh, the, the top of your door and that angel will pass over. And so what they did is they saw a sign and a symbol of grace in their own life. And so centuries would pass by, years would pass by, and every year annually, the Israelites would celebrate a Passover meal 
remembering what God did for them on that day. And man, God's wrath did not hit us on that day because of the sacrifice of the lamb that died in our place. And so what happens here is right before, the night before Jesus Christ was crucified, they have a Passover meal, a celebration remembering what had just happened. Now the irony is this, Jesus then talks about what the Passover actually means. And I don't think it's by mistake. I actually think it's by God's sovereignty that he places the Passover right before the night Christ was going to be killed. Isn't that weird? Think about. So look at this. Verse 7. of uh, We're going to skip down to verse 7. We'll hit the other verses here in just a moment. But I'm going to go to verse 7 for right now. I want to show you this. Then came the day of unleavened bread, which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. Then said to him, uh, where will you have, prepare, uh, have us prepare it? And he said, behold, when you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters. And tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room, which I will eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large room, a large upper room furnished, prepared it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Now here is a big picture of God's sovereignty here. It's amazing. I mean, if you don't find this bizarre, you're not reading the text, all right? It's weird. He's telling John, Peter and John, his disciples, we're going to go and we're going to prepare this feast that you guys have done for centuries. And you guys are going to go. And when you go, you're going to be meet, greeted with a guy with a jar. And, and then he's going to bring you up to this upper room. And it's going to be a table there. And there you will, you, will, you will prepare this feast. Now, I don't know about you, but that is crazy to me. Imagine uh, God telling you these specific things. Imagine if he were to do that today. Uh, when you go to that interview, you're going to be greeted with a guy with an orange tie. And the room is going to have a Thomas Kincaid painting in the background. And you're going to sit down and he's going to ask you these particular questions. And these are how you're going to answer these questions. I mean, can you imagine how crazy that would be if someone were to do that to you today? It, it would be weird, right? This is what he's doing to the disciples. You're going to see these specific things and these specific things are going to happen. Now, only if God could do that today, but he doesn't. Uh, if we could actually think, you know, uh, Ben, don't eat that food because you're going to really regret it later, right? If he could only say those things. I mean, I know who hot, the spiciest thing that you want to put on there. Don't do it. It's going to mess you up, right? If he could say that to me, that would be very helpful. Or, or ladies, you know, don't go on a, a date with that guy. It's not going to go well. Besides, you should have already known he has a popped up collar and he likes Nickelback. You should have already known it was not going to go well. You should have seen that. But he doesn't do that. Um, he doesn't speak to us in this way. I mean, and, and there's a good thing about that because we do have surprises. And if he just told us, hey, next week, ECU is going to get crushed by App State, I think you would be pretty mad about that, right? You'd be like, man, I actually wanted to see the game. I don't think that's going to happen, but I'm just saying, if he did that, that would, that would be really hard for us, right? But he doesn't do that. Uh, he's, he's God who's sovereign over all things, but he's given us his word. He doesn't make things that specific for each person because the Bible would be ridiculously long, Right? And so what he does here is he's telling the disciples specifically these things to prove and show us today, show his boy Theophilus that 
He's sovereign over this moment in these specific ways. He's, he's proven the point of how sovereign he is over his moment, over this moment that he is about to die. It's amazing to me. It's amazing. And so what Jesus does then, he explains what the Passover actually looks like. Look at this in verse uh, 14. It says this. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat until, the, until it was fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he said this, take this, divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now and on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after he'd eaten, saying, This cup is, that is poured out for you is the, is the new covenant in my blood. Now, notice what he's doing here, because if you don't catch the context, when he says, this is my body, here's where you'll end up. You'll end up thinking, if you took this thing, this one verse and bring it out, you end up with Roman Catholicism, all right? This is what happens with Roman Catholicism. They think that the actual blood and the actual bread becomes the actual body and blood of Jesus when you take it, because they would use this verse. He says, this is my blood. He says, this is my body, right? And so if you were to take that out of context, it would seem that when we come up later and we take the bread and we dip it into the cup, it, we would say, oh man, now supernaturally, God's body is now in us. Kind of gross, but that's how they see it, right? Uh, we also wouldn't, we would not say that because we would say, based on what he says, do this in remembrance of me. We would say that this is a memorial. This is a celebration that we have to remember what Jesus Christ has done. So we don't believe that when you come up and you take the bread and you take the cup that he, he somehow supernaturally shows up or any of those things. He's doing it as a remembrance of what Christ has done. So here's what Jesus is doing. He's saying, hey, remember how you guys, when you take this meal, it's used to be to remember um, you're this death angel passing over your house because a sacrifice, a sacrificial lamb has been placed as an offering before you. He's saying, you, re, you eat this meal to remember that, but now what you're going to eat this meal to remember is this. I'm the sacrificial lamb. I'm the one who died on the cross. I'm the one who bled. I'm the one who died in your place. And now the wrath of God will pass over you because of what I've done in your place. And so he's showing the symbol of what this is. It's a Passover. He's the Passover lamb. He's a true and better Passover lamb. What this means is this. Here's the implications of that. He raises the stake for this meal. What it used to be was people just go and remember, oh, that's what, that's what happened in the past. Clink, right, drink, right? And then we enjoy this meal together. But he raises the stake in it in this way. He's drawing attention to what Christ has done for us. And what this does, and let me just show you what Paul says about it, all right? Look at, look at 1 Corinthians 11. What Paul runs into is something very similar to the way the Israelites would have handled this meal. They would have taken it very flippantly, all right? The majority of them would have taken this as just, this is what we do every time we, we gather. Once a year, we just, we're supposed to do this. And we can see this based on Luke, how they handled the Passover. They, they handled it very flippantly. And what 
Paul does is he, he, he plants this church in Corinth, and these people are doing the same thing even after Jesus said this. They're coming together, and they're getting drunk off communion wine, all right? I mean, I don't know how bad you have to be to get drunk off communion wine. I don't even know how much you have to drink, but that's a lot, okay? That's a lot of trips up here, right? And, and so they are getting fat off the food. They are, they're coming up, and they're jumping in front of people to get the food, and it, it becomes a really big mess, and what Paul does is he begins to correct the, the problems with this and the selfishness that they saw. But look at what he says. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six 26 to 29. He says this, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever uh, therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty Concerning the body and the blood of the Lord, let a person, listen to this, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Listen to this. For anyone, anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, I don't know about you, but that scares me a little bit, right? I mean, I don't want to have this meal as just something that we just do every time we gather. Oh, this is what we've always done, just the way the Israelites were saying. This is what we've always done. Every single year, we just do this. No, actually, he's saying now, because what Jesus has done for us, we now examine our own hearts and say, when we come up, we're proclaiming Jesus' death. We're proclaiming the new covenant, the, the, the new heart in Christ. Here's what this means. College student, don't come up to take this just because your roommate took it. Sit and examine your heart. Ask the Lord, is there sin in my own heart before I take this? Here's what this means. Married person, just because your spouse comes up and takes this doesn't mean you take it. It means each person examine their own hearts before they take it. High school student, just because your peers, just because your parents take this cup doesn't mean that you run up and take it. It means this. You pause and you examine your heart so that you don't come up and take it in an unworthy manner. Look, I don't want judgment on you. I don't want judgment on you. I mean, I've, I've seen my wife multiple times. I preach sermons, by the way, that I don't live out. I just want to tell you that. All right, I'm not perfect. I don't live it out, okay? And I've, I've done, I, you know, I'm getting done, the songs are playing, and man, I'm, I'm back worshiping and praying through God, you know, let me, help me see my sin in my life. And he exposes something in my heart. This Holy Spirit shows me. And I see my wife, a pretty little lady, come up front. She takes communion with a smile on her face. And I'm like, I'm not going to go up there because I shouldn't. I got to deal with God. I got to deal with God. Because I don't want to bring judgment on myself. This is what he's saying. And so Jesus Christ, the God of the Bible, he raises the standard for what this meal actually means. It's a reflection of a new heart in Christ. It's a new part in Christ. And so what does this have to do with God's sovereignty? Here's what it has to do with God's sovereignty. That Jesus Christ is in no way shocked by these events and that God orchestrated the Passover meal the night before Jesus would die so that Jesus would come the true and better Passover. And so now when we gather, we gather in the same way 
remembering what Jesus has done, examine our own, own hearts as we respond to the gospel. It's a beautiful picture. That's why we do it every Sunday. I'm not saying we're making a law out of saying we have to do this every Sunday, but I'm saying it's a really good thing to do it every Sunday because we get a chance to examine our hearts and respond to the gospel. So God's sovereign here, and God's sovereign over, Jesus is sovereign over what's actually taking place, that he sees things that are happening here in the future. He sees these events but let me show you kind of the backstory. And I think this is a part that's going to be, make some of you mad, but it's okay. Verse 2 says this, chapter 22 of Luke, verse 2, it says, And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death. For they feared the people. Remember this? They're, they're afraid. There's a fear of man issue that they're willing to put at stake for the sake of Christ being crucified. Look at this. Then Satan entered Judas called Iscariot who was the number of the 12. And he went away and he conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the crowd. Now, let me just clarify this because there might be speculation on, was Judas a believer? No, he was not a believer, okay? Um, popular, uh, uh, contrary to the popular opinion of few, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> contrary to the opinion of a few, not the popular opinion, but the opinion of a few, he is not a believer. Uh, John says this in 664 and 670 of John. It says, there are some of you who do not believe. Did I not choose you the 12? And yet one of you is the devil. So he's saying this, I chose all 12 and I even chose the one that's the devil. That's weird. Uh, Doesn't he know the future? Doesn't he know that this is not a very good draft pick, right? This is a bad deal, right? This is like drafting somebody from Syracuse, right? It's not a good deal, right? Except for, what's his name? Uh, Mello, Anthony, yeah. Um, And so this is not a good deal. And so he's looking and saying, listen, this is not going to end well, but look, I'm I'm still choosing this 12, these 12 disciples. Uh, I want to say this too. Uh, If you're a believer, you cannot be filled with the devil, okay? I don't know what this meant in in Judas's life. I, I don't think he was like possessed and like couldn't control himself because it's very evident in the text that he could control himself because he was uh, obviously defying Jesus. He's very accountable for his sins. But I want to say this. If you're a believer, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. You cannot be filled with demons and Satan, all right? Just going to say it. But, but what happens here is Judas is, on some level, uh, tempted and tried by Satan himself, and he falls on the wayside because he's not a believer. And so Jesus, Judas is this non-believer whose heart is hardened, and, and Jesus, Jesus Christ, allows him to come and enjoy this meal with the other disciples. This meal that has just been, the standard has now been raised, and what this meal actually means, and Judas is sitting at this table with a hard heart, a heart that had just betrayed him for just a few pieces of silver. Can you talk about unworthy manner? Seriously. I mean, this guy is totally bringing judgment on himself right now, right in front of Christ. But look in verse 20. Let me just look even further at what happens. And likewise, the, uh, the cup after it had been eaten, saying, this cup is, that is poured out for you is a new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. The Son of Man goes at, has been determined. 
but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which one of them could it be who was going to do this? Now, I don't know about you, but I have a major problem with what's happening here. I mean, if you're one of the 11 disciples and you're hearing this, you're going, this is not me, I promise, right? He knows who this person is and he's calling it and he's allowing it. Get this, he is allowing it to happen. I mean, we even see throughout John, John 13, he talks about this. He says, and when he's talking about the 12, he says, I am not speaking of you. This is John 13, 18. I know whom I've chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. And he says this in, in, in 13, 19, I, I'm telling you this before it takes place and that when it does take place, you, will, you may believe that I am he. I mean, you even see in Jeremiah and uh, uh, Zechariah 11, uh, you even see the amount of money, 30 pieces of silver that Jesus was going to be betrayed by. And it's prophesied before, years before he was even born. And so the problem that I have with this is based on Scripture, based on what we've seen in the whole Bible about who this man was, here's what his life's supposed to look like. This is the guy that's going to be born, that's been prophesied that he would be born, that he would live a life of hard-heartedness, and he would stand before Jesus, walk with Jesus for three years of his ministry with knowing that he, Jesus Christ, knowing that he was going to betray him. He does so. He betrays him with 30 pieces of silver. He feels bad about it. So he tries to give that money to the church. Not a good way to give money, by the way, blood money, right? This is what he does. He's going to give money to the church. And then he feels bad about it, feels bad about it. And what happens when he feels bad about it? He goes and hangs himself. And then we know this based on Acts 1, that when the disciples were thinking through how to, how to replace him, they say he's where he belongs. Guess what they're talking about? Hell. And so based on scripture, here's what we have. The God of the universe, the God of the Bible, creates a person that would live a life of total blatant disobedience that has been prophesied before the foundation of the world that God said this would happen and take place and he lives this life and then he ends up in hell. That's difficult, is it not? The purpose, okay, just imagine this. Imagine you give Judas a track and he opens up this track and it says this, God loves you and has a perfect plan for your life. That doesn't work with Judas, all right? It doesn't work with Judas. Because, okay, what's my perfect plan? Oh, you're going to betray Jesus and you're going to end up in hell. Wow, I can't wait to start my journey, right? I mean, can you imagine? That this, is, this is tense, man. This is, this is real stuff. And so how do, we, how do we deal with that? If this is the God of the Bible that's creating one who would betray him and one who would end up in hell, what do we do with that biblically? Where do we even file that? Well, I'll tell you what. What Paul does is this. He begins to answer the same questions uh, to the the Romans. And this is what he does in Romans 9. Look at Romans 9 with me. This will help you understand this even more. Good, no one's left yet. Uh, Romans 9, uh, 20 says this. But who are you, old man, to answer back to God? So he's like, you know, I got all these questions. Who are you to ask? What does a molded say to the molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter have no right over the clay 
to make out of some lump one vessel for honor use and another for dishonorable use. Now I want you to see this. He's saying some I'm going to use for my glory, some I'm going to destroy. Okay, that's, that's what he says. All right, don't get mad at me. That's what Paul says. That's what God says. All right, verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order, get this, in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. What he's saying is this, I use believers for my glory because they trust me and know me. And I also use non-believers for my glory so that believers will trust me and love me. You ever wonder what non-believers purpose is for life? Here's their purpose. Just because they die and go to hell doesn't mean that they don't have a purpose. They're a purpose in the hands of God to pull believers into a saving faith in Jesus. It's a beautiful picture. It's hard for us to deal with, but it's a beautiful picture. I've shared this before. I want to share this here because I think it's important for you to grab it. I come from a long line of non-believing men, Tugwell men. Uh, uh, there's a lot of different lines of, I can go back and track and show you my, my timeline of, man, drunkenness and jail time and all kinds of mess, right? I mean, I could do the same thing with my wife and she could show you, man, straight jackets and all kinds of stuff that's been in her background. And so you say, what in the world was the purpose of these people even living on this earth because it doesn't seem right. I have this long past and long history, but here's the thing. If those guys never lived, I would not be born. And if I can't be born, I can't be saved, right? I have to be alive in order to be redeemed by Jesus. True or false? True, right? So God, in his goodness and his love and his mercy, uses non-believers throughout history to marry other non-believers throughout history so that one day Ben Tugwell would be born and so that one day the gospel would come and I would hear the gospel and I would get saved. And there's multiple reasons why God uses non-believers, but that's just one in my own life. We can just go on and on. I could show you multiple ways that God has used objects of wrath, is what he calls them. And man, I want you to grab this because this is what's happening here in the passage. God, Jesus, is seeing Judas's betrayal happened, and it's not surprising him because he knows that the God of the universe is using him as a pawn. And the reason why we even have this meal up here is because of God using Judas in this way. It's amazing. It's a big story. It's a big deal. Okay, so if you don't believe me, let me just use another analogy. Another story from Paul. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians. Paul is wrestling with a thorn in his side. How many of you ever heard that before? Paul has a thorn in his side. Good, like five of you. Good. Um, Paul has a thorn in his side. All right, it happens. Um, look it up. All right. First Corinthians 11, or 2 Corinthians uh, 12, he says this in verse 7. He says this about the thorn in his side. This is weird. And this is going to mess up a lot of your views on the devil and the demons and all this stuff that we see in the South. This is going to mess you up. All right, ready? So, to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Now, I don't know about you, but I have never prayed for that in my life. God, I'm really struggling with pride right now. I just need you to send me a demon, 
right? I need you to humble me with a good old demon. A good old demon will help me with my pride issues, right? I have never seen that. I mean, I've never grown up in Sunday school and ever seen a kid say, uh, what do you want for Christmas, Lord Johnny? You know what? I want a demon to tempt me. That would really help the issues that I have with not disobeying my parents. I have never seen that ever. But Paul is saying, hey, I'm really thankful that you've given me a demon to tempt me to keep me from being prideful. That's the way he sees God's sovereignty. And that is messy, all right? That, that is messy. That is difficult, is it not? Not difficult? And so, look at Job. Look at Job's life. Job is this man who fears the Lord. And who does the tempting? Satan, right? God doesn't tempt evil. That's what it says in, in James. But who allows Satan to tempt him? God. He has to ask God for permission to go and tempt him in this way. He has to ask him. And so in like five minutes, his life is like great. And then five minutes later, he loses everything. Wife, friends, kids, livestock, all of it. It's gone. And the whole book of Job is, is Job trying to reconcile what we're talking about today, God's sovereignty. Why on earth would you do this? And they're wrestling in the, in man, in the end. He loves God. And what he says at the very end of Job, after losing all of these things, this is what he says. I know, this is Job 42 too. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted, destroyed. Nothing can be stop you from doing what you want to do. That's what he says about the sovereign God of the universe. So here's what this means. Who is Judas? Judas is a pawn. He's a chess piece for God's plan. Who's Pharaoh? the guy who wanted to hold people captive. Pharaoh is a pawn in God's plan. Who are the chief priests and who are the scribes who were out to kill Jesus Christ? Pawns, pawns. Who are the demons who tempt and try people? Pawns, who is Satan? Pawn, all of them are pawns. Now God doesn't tempt us to evil, but man, let me tell you what, what man intended for evil, God intended for good. I love I love the story of Joseph. And if you want to look at the end of Genesis and just see a rich man of character, one that I would love to see in my own life, look at the story of Joseph. He is um, in every way shafted by his own family. I mean, if you have a crazy family, he had a really crazy family. His brothers sold him into slavery and said that he was dead just because he liked to wear a rainbow sweater, right? It's kind of mean, all right? I don't like him either, but I'm just saying. And so he lives this life and he lives, he moves up the rank because of his, his unbelievable character that God gives him. And he moves out of prison and he, man, he's, he's thrown, in, 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 you just read the story, it's, ama- it's amazing. But what happens, very interesting, at the end of Genesis, his brothers are worried about running into him again because they know they're about to see him. And they, they start to get afraid and they start to worry, man, what is he going to say to us? Now he's this man of position and he could actually have us killed. And what he says this, he says something very interesting. He looks at his brothers and says, what man intended for evil, God intended for good. And that's good news, right? See, so this is, this is what we need to see. That when we look at God and we look at Satan and we're trying to deal with these things, it is not some yin-yang thing. It's not some, and this is the way I grew up seeing it in the South. 
And we always talk, it was like half the sermon was about God, half the sermon was about Satan. I just don't want to give Satan that much credit. I want to talk about God a lot. I remember someone who came from a different background said, you don't talk about Satan a lot. Yeah, because the Bible doesn't talk about Satan a lot, but it talks about Jesus a ton. So I'm going to talk about Jesus, all right? And so what we see here a lot in the South is there's this dualistic way that we see God. It's like God and Satan are always arm wrestling and Satan, oh, he's coming close. So God, oh, you know, it's like this, whoa, this is a really tight rope. We're not really sure who's going to win this thing. We're not really going to sure how this going to come out. Hope God wins. Or, oh, he got a victory today. Oh, Satan gets a point today because I got in a car wreck, you know. And we just, man, we just, we're, we're always at a score and there's, we don't know. Let me tell you this. That is not the picture that we see in scripture. It's not. Satan is a pawn and what he intends for evil, God is going to use for good. And God has planned it this way. And because that shows us the bigness and the beauty of God, and that he's not distant, he's involved in your life. And what Romans 8, 20, and I love it. For those who love God, all things work together for the good. We just sang it. For those who are called according to his purpose. Here's what this means, all right? Here's what this means. If you're a believer in Jesus, there is nothing Nothing that God put in your life that won't end in deeper love, deeper joy, deeper happiness, deeper passion for him. Nothing. Believer, if you believe in Jesus, you've repented and believe in the gospel, you are, in a sense, invincible in the fact that God is going to use the tough, difficult, hard things that happen to you in your life for your good because he loves you that much. And that's a beautiful picture of the gospel. Because here's the thing, all of us in this room, we have the same hard heart that Judas has at birth. And if you're a believer, it's because the Holy Spirit of God has softened your heart and has drawn you to the cross that's what it is. You're just as wicked as Judas. I know, I know we try to make it sound like we're not. We are. We betray him all the time. And the only thing that stops us from betraying him is the spirit of God who's working in us and changing us from the inside out. And so what this means here for a believer, we have very much hope in that everything that happens for us is going to be for our good. I know there's bad things. We weep for those who weep. We mourn with those who mourn, but there's going to be bad things because we're here on earth and this world is not our home. But what this means for non-believers is this. I cannot quote Romans 8.28 to you and give you any hope because it's not true about your life. If you're a non-believer here this morning, I cannot sit here and tell you everything that happens to you is going to be for your good and for God's glory. I can't tell you that because it's not going to be true. So the hope that you have this morning is Christ, is the true and better Passover. That is what it is. So what we all have to do here this morning is this. We have to see the God of this Bible who's sovereign over all things, who's control over all things, good and bad, and we just have to trust him. Say, God, I know that you've proven yourself to me because you've, you love me so much that you would give your son to die on a cross for me, and that's enough. And for us, when we, when we realize that, the beauty of that, what we strive for is that Christ is enough. Christ is enough. And so that's what I want to happen here this morning.
So if you're a believer, that you would find hope in that. If you're a non-believer, it would lead you to repentance. Let the story of Judas lead you to repentance this morning so that you won't be coming up, taking this meal and betraying him with your heart.